Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Jaguar, the art of performance. To learn more about the all-new Jaguar XE, visit jaguarusa.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio, he's been to Shell and back. It's Andy Greenwald! Oh, shalom, my friend. Good to have you here. An extremely Jewish episode of The Watch today. Well, one and a half, yeah. Is that a crazy thing to say to start this episode? It's a little weird. (laughs) But we're talking about transparent, so it's okay. Uh, One and a half Jews up in this piece. Uh, Andy, it's great to see you. Um, I want to talk before we get. We're going to talk about this sort of state of television comedy. This is right our now. TV check-in week. Yeah. We're going to check in with some new comedies today. We're going to check in with some new dramas on the re-up. Yep. If things feel a little weird, it's because you know we went a whole week with just guests. Just, just I like, know, like human barricades between us. <laughs> now it's just us in this very very dark room. It's not that dark. It's not that dark, but it is warm. Um, it, is, it is a warm. It's a different room. We haven't recorded in this before, so. So we're checking the vibe. Before we get into comedies, I do just want to tell our listeners a little bit about a small film that I saw this in indie. It, it, it's an independent film, a film from the heart. And mm-hmm. It's called Magnificent Seven. Mm. Um, I heard about that. I think that people probably, I, th- I th- this is an interesting one where the critics have not been very into Magnificent Seven. I think the fans have been. And I count myself as a fan in this case. Okay. So I'm a really big Westerns fan. I didn't know this about you. It's a very low bar to clear to make me enjoy a Western. You literally, before we started rolling, before Tate had recorded, you said the words, Westworld is going to be dope. Yeah. Is that because it's a Western? I I mean, it's it's, it's hard. I think think Westworld will be dope for other reasons than that, because I love Jonah Nolan. I love his work. Um, No, but it it helps. It certainly helps. I don't really need a lot. I need a town and a horse and some guns help. Okay? (laughs) And Magnificent Seven not only clears the bar... It hurdles over that shit like Edwin Moses, okay? So you have Denzel, who the whole performance seems to be based around this idea that his look in this movie was that he was washed. And he's like, no, you are washed because watch me ride side saddle and shoot guns through buildings. Washed up? Or like physically? Like washed up. That's a phrase that kids use. Are they, is that a meme? like, oh, you're washed, yeah. I thought you meant like his whole look is that he's clean, but no. other people in the movie No, are no, clean. no. He's got a very interesting mustache. Pratt is going full Jurassic. He's nice. hamming it up. But he is just like turkey bacon <laughs> compared to the god Peter Sarsgaard. Wow. It's pure, uncut, Peruvian flake Sarsgaard. <laughs> Two scenes, like three scenes, and he's just like, whatever direction he got, yeah. no one else was CC'd on that email. <laughs> so he's just like, I will be weird Creole Trump yeah. and just shout about, because you you know who wrote this thing, right? No. Pizzolatto. Me. No. Yeah, he wrote a draft of it. It's Nick Pizzolatto and somebody else was credited. No. So there's a whole opening speech about capitalism being close to godliness, and that's what gives him the right to just take over this valley and take it away from homesteaders. Is he Sheriff Ray Velcoro? Yeah, it, but it's but everybody is is there's there's a lot of vibes like that. Nowhere else felt more so, if that makes any sense at all, than Ethan Hawke playing a dude named Goodnight Robichaux. 
That's just terrific. Who is a conf- ex-Confederate sniper with PTSD who sees <laughs> owls in his dreams. How is there room for that? There are seven of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. How does one of them have a player card well, with because, that much info on oh, it? Oh, also Vin- Vincent D'Onofrio has the weirdest accent choice in modern American movie history. In modern American history or modern American D'Onofrio history. But, yeah, the, I, I thought that became, was an ass- you were assumed. Yeah. So uh, two thumbs up, two guns up. Yeah. Loved Magnificent Seven. Now you, one thing that we should say going into this, you are an avowed Fuqua head. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You Fuqua with Fuqua. <laughs> Fuqua that. You love that dude. <laughs> so what did he bring to this movie other than Denzel Washington? So because they have a good working He is obviously a Westerns fan. Yeah. He knows that there is like a dopamine hit from a beautiful vista hmm. and a horse riding across the vista. But Fuqua can, can Fuqua with some action movie scenes. Yeah. So the there's two set pieces in this movie, the, the when the Magnificent Seven first arrive in town and the final huge battle that are really, really, really good. Really, really solid work. Here's my question about the movie, because, you know, I'm 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 Mr. I'm Joe Popcorn here. I'm a little skeptical. <laughs> the, Joe Popcorn's with me. That's true. You're Anthony Lane. I am Sir Joseph Popcorn. <laughs> I'm usually going to the art house, but I'm considering this okay. one because I love Goodnight Robo Show. I like your I like what you're telling me. The trailer for this movie, yes, a lot of people got shot in it. Mm-hmm. A lot of guns, yeah. a lot, of, a lot of shooting. My concern: this isn't from some moral standpoint here. I would like to see a western where it was also a western, where it basically is this a western where people are like shooting six guns and it's a western, or does it essentially just turn into like the NES game Contra? So your point? your question is how much reloading happens. You know, that's well put. Yeah, that is, that's what I'm asking. Um, I, I got to like, admit, yeah. I don't think Fuqua Fuquwood with the facts when it comes to no. reloading. I definitely think there's a couple of times where Denzel lets off like 27 shots before he's like, you, you, I need a bullet. You're saying. But Mi- they do. But there is like ammo does come into play. You're saying like, Mr. Smith and Mr. Wesson were not <laughs> consultants on the film. No, no. And that didn't take you away from it. There isn't like a dude that, who's just like, yes, it's 1864, but I'm really into flamethrowers. Which is 1870s. So, you know, they had like slightly high, higher oh, technology. Oh, it's antebellum. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah. I, let me retract all of In fact, the my... Civil War, its shadow is cast over this entire film. Does the movie end with... the? With uh, you know, there, there's a uh, like a, a little line. Everyone laughs. They high five, freeze frame, whatever. They run the credits. Mm-hmm. Is there a little like tag for the magnificent expanded universe for the magnificent eight? No. Okay, I'm I into don't that. think so. I right, guess you don't think so because you didn't stay. Well, no, I did stay. I would just say that I, I just don't want to spoil. What anything. about the part at the end mm-hmm. when Thanos appears? <laughs> And he's just like... And Chris Pratt just throws on a dope mixtape yeah. of 1870s radio jams. And he's like, I'm ready to fight you, space guy. Yeah. Does that happen? No. It's not. You know what's nice, though? I feel like our listeners, Joe and Josephine Popcorn, <laughs> I, I think they'll be pretty psyched because it's nice to hear you happy. I well, Have I not been happy these last no, couple you're weeks? Just, you're just pretty jazzed on this movie. Yeah, well, because here's the thing is I just like... I think that if there was like 20 Westerns or 50 Westerns made per year, this would be relatively unremarkable. But to see something that's just actually executes the five things you want the baseline Western to do, it was great. Can I just do a little like uh, Andy's Hollywood talk aside here? Come on. Um, I'm trying to come up with a new bit since I don't go on airplanes anymore. Andy's Hollywood talk. This isn't... It's working title. (laughs) Working title. Um, This sounds like whatever the L.A. version of New York One would be. Andy's Hollywood talk. Listen, do you remember uh, there was a show called True Detective, the second season. Mm -hmm. 
There's a moment when Ravel. I wish they called the True Detective the second season. It's Colin. shocking to me that they didn't have you mentioned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> True Detective, the anticipated second season. Yeah. Uh, when Ray Velcora walks into the apartment in Hollywood early on and there's a dude in a bird mask who just shoots him. Uh-huh. But, like, joke's on everyone. It's just blanks. And it was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, he was just being warned or something. I kind of had one of those. I had a little Hollywood brushback the other day. I was, uh, over the weekend, I was picking up a little little dinner with my family. Mm-hmm. And uh, a guy came up to me and he was just like, is this going to be another one of those situations where you don't like people talking to you when you eat? That's really true, but I wasn't eating it, so it was okay. It was all it was all above board. But a guy was like, "Hey, do you do you do TV reviews?" And I was like, "I dabble." <laughs> sure. It's been a while though. The name's Goodnight Robe Show. <laughs> <laughs> Critical gun for hire. And he, I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "Yeah, man." He was he's like, "I like you know, I like listening to you when I disagree with you." He's like, "But my buddy doesn't." I was like, "Oh, word." He's like, "My buddy Nick Pizzolatto, the god of the the Ojai legend." And I was like, "I guess." I guess he wouldn't. Let's just be in, enjoy your one hundred percent transparent here. Yeah, I like Nick Pizzolatto. No, I know. Oh, so you don't? <laughs> but that was like a little threatening, right? That was a little like brushback. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that's a little weird. Yeah. It's a little weird to be like, guess who doesn't like you? Yeah. Well, also, pretty easy guess. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty like top three. I would have guessed. Not so who much are the of a other surprise. Two? Um, boy, that's a. Ooh, you put me on the spot. Who? who what? Like out here? Just in general. Um, the pre your previous co-host on this show <laughs> from season one, <laughs> the watch that dude, the dude in the bird mask. Yeah, the dude in the bird mask. I would be like, "What do you think about Lost?" And he'd be like, burr, burr. "Dennis, yeah. Dennis hates me," and um, and and Doug from Tidal because oh, we yeah. really put him on blast. I know. And Nick Pizzolatto. Those are the three, <laughs> the three who are out to get me. The magnificent three. Um. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing that movie. Maybe in eighteen months. Yeah, I it, it's it's I cannot wait for it to be on TNT all day long, just forever. Yeah, it's it's really it was really satisfying. Is it better than three ten to Yuma? Um, I think so. Okay. Yeah. I, I was I was testing. I like that movie, but I was also just testing your Western bona fides. But it's a it's like that's a great example of movies a movie that I wish they just made more of. It's a shame they have to like just remake all these classics. Although, feel free. I would, there is there is a Rio Bravo remake that is dying to be made right now. Oh, speaking of Mr. Hollywood talk. I'm just it's just like why can't we have a a cool western hangout movie of just just dudes hanging out with horses? Yeah. I yeah. feel like you just want to go to like City Slickers Fantasy Camp. Like you just want to get some dudes together and like panhandle. What name name bad westerns? What we like bring Deadwood back. What are you guys doing? Just like what's the problem? Wild Wild West. That was a bad western. Yeah, I guess so. Let's see. I got answers. You do. Let's talk about comedy because we both love to we both love to laugh. I love to laugh and, um, and to hack. One of the major themes we've been hitting over the last couple of weeks, especially as we talked about Emmys and how malleable the shows are within these sort of fixed categories mm-hmm. that the Emmys had, was the expanding definition of what a comedy is. Uh, and obviously, this slate of fall shows, which is kind of fun, it's it does feel like it's. A fall TV season there's right now. There's so much on to watch. So much to watch. So um, much of it is, is good. But from the outer reaches of streaming television to the most traditional network slots, mm-hmm. we are seeing experimentation. Yeah. We are seeing people saying, like, what is, does an NBC 30-minute show mm-hmm. really have to feel like every NBC 30-minute mm-hmm. show? So with that in mind, we wanted to talk about a couple of these comedy with quotes yeah. Comedies. There are a couple we want to talk about, and we're going to, I think, discuss them and say whether we're in or out on them. We probably won't do 
too met too spoiler heavy. Because yeah, we'd like people yeah, because that's the funny thing about these comedies now is that there actually is quite a bit of plot. And... So we want to talk about Fleabag on Amazon. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about The Good Place on NBC. Yes, we're talking about Easy. Yes, on Netflix. The Return of Transparent, Transparent Season 3 mm-hmm. on Amazon. And then we each have a wild card that we're bringing to the party. Yeah. Uh, you're bringing a show called The Range. It's about Bruce Hornsby. The Ranch, yeah. The Ranch, which yeah, you yeah. wrote about. I did. On uh, on a website, The Ringer, last week. And, Bro uh, Bible. And I watched <laughs> I watched uh, uh, Speechless in ABC Comedy. Oh, okay. But we'll, come, we'll circle back around to that. Let's start with Transparent. Because I feel like this is yeah. one of the four or five big shows on television right now. It is. Big in terms of its its importance, its critical appreciation. I don't, I don't, who knows what kind of numbers it gets. I still feel weirded out by reality, even though it's the third season at this point of this happening. But it this is one of TV's major shows. It's mm-hmm. certainly one of the most critically lauded and critically, critically watched. It drives conversation within the industry and people are paying close attention. It wins Emmys. It won Best Pretty Director. Pretty much single-handedly established Amazon as like a home for creative talent. Absolutely. Absolutely true. Um, and it's so weird to me that Amazon's just like, here's, here's more. Here's yeah. five hours more. Yeah. Here you go. And it just all drops out there and on a weekend. And it seems odd to try and find our place in the conversation. So we are going to revisit it because I think we only watched a couple episodes. Yeah, I think each. we often grapple with how to cover. It's 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 representative of, of how difficult it is to talk about streaming shows in general because you get this huge yeah. chunk of content. And it's like, we don't know when to talk about it. How, how many have you guys seen? How many have we seen? When do we start talking about but I think with Transparent, we can talk about it generally enough. The thing about Transparent that also catches me off guard every time, this is the third time, is that it is comple- It is still tonally unlike anything else on television. It is still button-pushing and challenging. And button-pushing sounds like a little pejorative. I don't mean it that way. Mm-hmm. But for a show that I could not wait to have back in my life, and I turned on the first episode, there are moments where I was like, oh, God. You know, it made me cringe, where it's difficult to watch or it's uncomfortable to watch. Or you, you see the characters that you've grown to know. I don't know if we love many of them. We love some of them, certainly. Behave in ways that they've been behaving for past seasons. And I'm, I'm covering my eyes. I'm like, I don't know right. if I can do this again right now. Right. Um, but that said, it's already in this third season, once again, running right into into areas of, these, of the Pfefferman's lives, into um, cultural issues and gender issues that I just didn't think a TV show would do. And this show just... Kool-Aid man's it right down the door. We Kate, when we first started this podcast, it was in an era of shows. The two of us are you and Dennis. You, you and me and Dennis, but yeah. then when you when you were brought on against my best wishes, <laughs> uh we made it and we were starting this pod at a time when um sh- the the big shows on television, the sort of critically adored sh- shows on television were almost reluctant participants in television. Yeah. Uh you would often have these like I think, tip, what I'm thinking of is Breaking Bad and Mad Men, mm-hmm. where it would seem like you had to drag it out of the creators kicking and screaming, and then they chopped it up into two half mm-hmm. seasons. And um, Amazon comes back now three years in a row, like clockwork, and is remarkably consistent. I guess what I wanted to ask you is, do you think Amazon, do you think Transparent, has taken a leap at all? Because around this time, I think. When shows are really ardently watched yes. at the time that they've, they're on, that's one thing. Sometimes when there is that late appreciation of a show like Breaking Bad and to some extent like Mad Men, you start to see, well, in the third season, they know more people are watching. The fourth oh, season, yeah. they know more people are watching and they've started to change the show. So I was curious whether you thought there was a different 
Is it a different show now than it was when it started? I think it's a really good question. I don't know the right answer to that. I, I think you're right to immediately sort of frame the question in terms of the realities of production. Um, and I'd love to be able to talk to someone at Amazon or Jill Soloway about this, but it does seem pretty clear that they knew what the, you know, Amazon does this whole charade with like voting on your pilots yeah, right. or whatever. They don't really pay attention to that. I mean, they right. look at it, but that doesn't matter. They want to be in business with the people they want to be in business with. Um, as soon as Jill Soloway turned in the transparent pilot, which I still think is maybe the best pilot, maybe that Mr. Robot, the two best pilots of the last five, 10 years, mm-hmm. um, they knew what they were, they wanted more of it. And they knew they wanted to be in business with her and with the show. And so I have the sense that they just put her into production. Yeah. So, you know, as much as when the season first season premiered, they were like, it's been renewed or guess what? Season three, there's a green light. Sure. In order to hit these deadlines, there is a perpetual green light on this show. Um, when we talked to Sam Esmail last week, one thing that's pretty clear is that he he's going to talk to USA about having a different production schedule, which might not mean which might mean not making that July premiere date because he wants to make the show the way he wants to make it. Whatever Amazon has done or however Jill Soloway works, it's a machine. Right. They hit these spots. They right. hit their they hit their marks or whatever, and they do it every year, and that has to affect things. On the flip side of it, you know, for people who read the the really strong Jill Soloway feature in the New Yorker last year, this creative. Um, peak. I don't know. I don't want to call it a peak because she still could make even better work. But this creative um, explosion from her goes along with some very dramatic changes in her own life and her own perspective on on gender and sexuality. And so it's interesting to, to it's it's like when a you know when a musician hits those those two three four albums where they're like they're making the music but they're also living their lives in a way that complement each other. It does seem like she has no shortage of inspiration. Um, you know, it's probably not fair to read too much into it, but at the same time, she's very public about that stuff. Yeah, so and I also too. think that it sounds like, you know, you that New York article and a lot of interviews since then have touched on the, like, pretty progressive, inclusive yes. way that this show is made. And I do think that one thing I would say about it is that it is seems like it is, its perspective is widening. Um, not yeah. that I mean, it already had a very specific and unique and needed perspective Mm -hmm. anyway but it's starting to open up a little bit more i would also say it's a show that's uniquely situated or uniquely set up to respond to critics from all corners because if the first season was about um mora's transition and and coming out um that's not the end of a story it's the beginning of the story right in many ways and so whatever criticism existed from the trans community or uh, you know coming basically criticism coming from the left of the show uh the show is uniquely situated to respond to it because her journey was just beginning and her experiences could broaden and deepen and, and continue. So, you know, you come back with this, this the season premiere of season three and you see why Jeffrey Tambor won an Emmy. You're not quite sure why he won it for best comedy right. performance because this is just an unbelievable dramatic performance on top of everything else. The, the first episode is, is completely focused on, on Mora and it's a remarkable performance. It's a very discomforting episode. I think it, you know, it, it, it was hard to watch at times. And one thing that struck me was that, and I, I don't know if this was the case in the first season, but this season, maybe more than the past two, seemed completely uninterested in episodic divisions. Mm-hmm. There really was no um, resolution, even mini resolution. It was the beginning, you know, it was like tipping something into an ocean and then the subsequent episodes follow we, up on it. You know, they used to talk about shows like The Wire and would be one of the, 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 the sort of blurbs you'd throw on it is novelistic. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is starting to feel like to mm-hmm. me. It's starting to feel like an actual family epic. 
um, even though you know it's not necessarily covering like a huge swath of time. I mean, it's just it it, it feels like it relative it relatively like one after the other like you're saying it's just the pages are turning not the chapters are flipping but over time i think you're just seeing uh this entire family change underneath the umbrella of what's happened to mora and it's just it's just a fascinating television show it's just i think it gets to the larger conversation that we're having here and it just because it gets nominated for comedies does not mean its intention is to be funny. Although it often is very funny. It often is very funny, but I think it, you can transition to other shows that we're talking about here by saying, like, how much do we want or do we care right. about that being a part of the show? Well, let me ask you one other thing before we move on. How do you find a balance between what you obviously knew immediately was just this almost almost um, journalistic accuracy in terms of the, the inner workings of a temple um, steering mm. committee, you know, which just got real deep in the weeds. And I was like, how could they? It's like, I haven't been back to synagogue since I made my own beanbag proposal, frankly. <laughs> First of all, that was only eight. Chris so. has been making beanbag proposals in every meeting he's been in for 20 years. How do you think I've risen to the ranks of the ringer? And why do you think they're all so comfortable yeah. over in the office yeah, yeah. on plush beanbags? Uh, it's just that slug line life. How do you square the accuracy of that aspect of the show with the complete farce of Nathan Fielder's character. <laughs> well, yes, of, yeah. but also Josh's apparent limitless bankroll <laughs> at an independent record company yeah. in 2016. Yeah. Let me tell you something. He could not afford the top button to button. What's the name of the band that Nathan Fielder comes in and, and he's like, this, I felt the way I felt watching this band is yeah. the way you must have felt watching like f Cookie Fuss. Cookie Fuss? Yeah. Fussy Pants. I don't know. He's remember. just like, yeah, go ahead and sign him, man. He's like, sign him. I don't even care. Like, right. listen, you can't like Brad Pitt and Moneyball a record <laughs> in just the record industry in 2016. It okay? is kind of Wire Season 5 where it's like you yeah. get to the end, you get to this one part. And you're like, you just bump up against it. Do you think somebody actually is saying this about Snapchat and Periscope? But here are the things that I really like about the show and will always bring me back to it. Um, well, three things. Number one, beanbags. Love them. <laughs> they conform to your body. It's great. Two, the siblings. I just, you know, you and I, we don't have them. We don't have siblings. Nope. Uh, Dennis was really the closest thing you ever had to a brother. <laughs> <laughs> and we all saw what I did to him. <laughs> but I love, I find, because maybe I don't have any siblings, I love to see the relationship between them yeah. and i i think that you know i don't know it freaks me out it's wild yeah and the relationship as an only child it just freaks me out but i just can't even imagine but so i that's one of the reasons why I, I will always find the show compelling number three the goddess judith light i big 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 moment for her in general i love going to shell <laughs> let me just tell you that i think that performance is so amazing i think that character is so ripped from the headlines of real life. Like, uh -huh. I'm not going to name names. I don't know who and whose family listens to this show, but I know ladies like that. I've been to their one-woman shows. And the relationship, and also with Buzzy, Richard Mazur. one-woman shows called Passover Dinner? <laughs> I'm just, I'm not saying anything. But all of that stuff is just, I'm 100,000% in on. I love her performance. I think she's great. And so, you know, we're, we'll, check back, we'll check back in on yeah. the show. But, it, you know, Maybe the thing to say about it before we pivot is just, I don't think the show cares who more people are watching or paying attention. It is so completely devoted to its own path. Yeah, and you know what? This shows uh, a lot of what this show does is a challenge to like 
the usual way of thinking about things. Yes. So maybe some of our bullshit ideas about what are you going to take the leap, you know? Yeah, it doesn't what apply. Do you, like, who cares? But it was interesting to see how many, there were a bunch of, like, rando people just appearing on the show. Yeah. Right? Like, um, not the random, like, fa- like semi-famous Like J.B. Smoove. Right. Yeah. Like, J.B. Smoove was in it, and um, Sashir Zameda from Saturday Night Live had a, was the receptionist um, at the medical clinic. Um, you mentioned Nathan Fielder, uh, who... You, you broke my heart the other night at the, at the HBO party when you said he does look a little bit like me from behind. I was like, thanks. thanks Only from behind. Thanks a lot, friend. Um, and uh, so that was interesting. If anything, that took me out a little bit. To have those faces. So you recognize. I'm to like, have what people are they you recognize. In this world? Although it's nice that people want to come, come play in their sandbox. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's that show. Before we get into talking about Fleabag, we know it's a little rude to interrupt, but while we have your ear, let's have a brief conversation about manners. As the British like to say, manners maketh the man. So it's no wonder that Jaguar's first ever compact sports sedan, the Jaguar XE, and their first ever SUV, the Jaguar F-Pace, are well-mannered. They both put you at ease the moment you enter, remain composed in any situation, and know when to make themselves heard. For the full Jaguar Guide to Manners, please visit jaguarusa.com. Thank you. Jaguar, the art of performance. Also, just want to tell you a little bit about the Black Tux. Do you have a wedding or a special event coming up and you need a tux like now? Don't panic. The Black Tux designs modern fit suit and tuxedo rentals that deliver straight to your door. And now the Black Tux will give you a free home try on so you can see the fit and feel the quality of their suits before your event. And the best part, you can do it all online. Head to theblacktux.com to create your look or choose a complete outfit package. Prices start at just $95. Their suits are designed with fine Italian wool, the highest quality on the rental market, and their expert customer care team is always available to answer questions. Your outfit will arrive a full week before your event, and that leaves plenty of time to try it on, and if the fit needs to be dialed in, the Black Tux will fix any problems before your event. When your event's over, just drop your rental back in the the mail. Shipping is always free both ways from delivery to return. Visit theblacktux.com slash bspn and experience a new way to rent. Theblacktux.com slash BSPN. Now I have to, I'll, I want to be, I want to admit something. I was not feeling this show in the beginning. Yes. And then every single person I know yeah. has come up to me and been like, have you seen Fleet? Like, not, no. Every single person I know that has also seen Fleet. Oh, it's a much smaller <laughs> yeah. sample size. Yeah. It wasn't like I was like, like, you know, rant, but. I have been really like forced to just recalculate on this one. Yeah. Now, the first few episodes of the show, why don't you set it up a little bit? Okay, so Fleabag is a show that's on Amazon now, six episode first season, might be the only season, uh, created by, written by, starring um, an English performer named Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is tremendous. Uh, and will be... And will be on the Andy Greenwald podcast on Wednesday. She sat in that seat you're sitting in now. Uh, we had a great conversation and I realized in that conversation I didn't set up what the show was any more than I did here. <laughs> so basically it was based on a one woman show that she did at the Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh festival, uh, recently within the last couple of years. And it's about, it, it's a fourth wall breaking comedy question yeah. mark about a young woman who seems to be the life of the party. Um, she's very body. She's very sexually frank. Um, who as the series goes on you realize is not having any fun in her own life uh and it's about her relationship with her best friend who passed away her struggling business her very sort of emotionally distant sister um and just to give a little context about her you know she was on this show crashing in england well, she created that show she too. created it and 
I guess if I could give people, I mean, and that show's on Netflix now. Yeah, and it's not as big. I don't think they're as necessarily as popular, but this would be as like as if Lisa Kudrow did the comeback, like a year after. Here's the thing: five months later. Yeah. Here's the crazy thing about this. So she was, you know, she had a name for herself in like in theater, and she was on Broadchurch season two and was had yeah. a career going. Uh, Crashing is a script she wrote when she was really young. It was a, more of a standard. And it's sitcom. about like twenties somethings who live rent free in a disused hospital as like custodians. Which, or... by the way, post Brexit England is a darker place <laughs> than I thought. Uh, and it was sort of on a pile of scripts at, at I forget if it was Channel Four or wherever she did ITV that show. Or something, yeah. When Fleabag started to get heat and like BBC wanted to do it and Amazon came on to finance it, then the channel that owned Crashing was like, oh, we want to do this too. Really? So she did, so, and then she had to write the rest of the scripts and Fleabag, and she did it all in like an eight-month period. It's incredible that it comes from the same mind, I will say that. Yes, and I think she said that too. She had to basically like time travel into her 20-year-old self and then be the 30-year-old self for Fleabag. They're also, very, the, very senses of, like, the sensibilities are like completely different. Very different show. Um, Although there are some, yeah, but I'll be interested but to hear your interview. I really it. want... I really think people should watch this show. I thought this was tremendous. And one of the reasons I thought it was tremendous was the way it confounds expectation. Because the first episode you watch it, you're like, oh, I get why people are naming Lena Dunham and girls in comparison. I sort of, it's sort of, you know, it's, you, you think you get what the show is and it's good at being that show. And then for me, it was the second episode got a little deeper and the third episode got a little deeper. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the fourth episode, which is just one of the best episodes of TV I've seen this year. And it knocks you flat. And you realize that all along the show was a different show. And I love that feeling. And I think it's kind of interesting. Um, it's an interesting reflection of how TV works now that you can do that. She knew she was making six episodes. You know, I, when we talk about, well, when I talk briefly about Speechless, the ABC comedy, which you really shouldn't compare these two things. But the problem with that, sh- with that pilot is that it's just, it has to be a pilot. It has to do so much stuff to yeah. tell you, this is the show we are. And it's really just an advert. It's a billboard for itself. Yeah, yeah. And then the show it's going to be is the show it's going to be in like 10 weeks or two years. Or if people if stick around or they keep making right. it. Fleabag didn't need to do that. It could draw you in more slowly. I think I, really I found out a little bit. That. I needed to adjust to that. So I've been trying to think about why why it took me. I, I, I like this show more than I did when I started. I, I still don't know if I'm like zany for it. But did you finish it? How far in did you go? I watched that fourth episode, yeah. which I thought was great. And I haven't watched the fifth one yet. Um, so you know how the people sometimes will be like, I can't watch another serial killer show. Mm-hmm. I can't watch another crime show where like there's just dead bodies everywhere or something like that that's how i feel about louis type shows well you're you're living in the wrong decade my friend because i it's never really been it's like it's something brain chemistry wise i've never really felt comfortable watching that kind of comedy and i know somebody you would say that's the point yeah i don't like that feeling Hmm. like i don't really enjoy that feeling when i'm watching a show and it's just like aren't i terrible and isn't this awful and awkward i'm like fuck get me out of here but that's exactly that feeling and reaction i think is what fleabag responds to i think it's a misdirect Mm -hmm. but you think you're watching someone who thinks she's clever and you know but in fact the the conceit that she takes advantage of in the beginning of like turning to the camera doing the jim halpert like yeah as more and more truth is revealed about who she is and her relationship to people the the imposition of the audience becomes painful for her yes. in a way that's really and to that extent it's like a brilliant ex- like formal yeah in a like invention to do that yeah i'm just saying for me and yeah. it's like this is actually like we are at a point right now with there's love there's better things there's louie there's this show where a lot uh, there it's comedy that's playing on 
the mundane discomfort and awfulness of everyday things. You know, I one one choice I made this weekend that was a weird one was we were like, let's let's watch a movie. Maybe we haven't watched a movie since I was on an airplane alone. <laughs> when I say we. Uh, <laughs> And I remembered that I was pretty... My wife was like, let's go see Magnificent Seven. Well, she she went out to to see it. (laughs) And I was home alone. Uh, I remembered, and I thought this was kind of cool, that Netflix had uh, gotten the rights to all of Albert Brooks' films Mm -hmm. and put them on. And I had a whole thought about that that I wanted to do on a podcast at some point, which it it seemed like a really smart... (laughs) This is not with me. But not with you. (laughs) Dennis and I have a little side hustle going. Um, it's super weird to be like, I'm going to do a podcast. No, I was, was going to talk about it with you, but then I didn't actually watch any of these movies okay. to back it up. Okay. Which is basically like, everyone knows that Netflix has no movies anymore. Yeah. And that's sort of a bummer. To the extent that they're like, Big Short is on Netflix. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> it's they, worth watching. Like, even we can't believe it. Yeah, right. Did you know Brad Pitt was in this one? <laughs> he was. Um, th- that it seemed like a smart way forward for these services that can't get new releases or can't get very much. But if they could like go all in on an auteur or a filmmaker and basically be like, we are curating this director like a TV show. Yeah. Like that seemed like a very smart... As we'll probably talk about with Easy. ...feature to do. Right. And so they had Albert Brooks and I was like, okay, great. So, and I realized I'd never watched his... I'm a big Defending Your Life guy. Me too. I love that movie. I love that movie. Mostly just because it makes me hungry though. Me too. The sushi bar scene. Yeah. That is a a very important scene. And by the way, Netflix didn't get that one for some reason. (laughs) But that movie clearly influenced The Good Place, which we're getting to in a second. But so I watched... um, it's called Modern Romance or something. Uh-huh. I think that's what it was called from 1981. And it is very pleasant and it is very clever. And Albert Brooks really is and was a titan of a certain kind of comedy. And what I realized, my wife and I realized as we were watching it, is it was very comfortable and so familiar that it was no longer really that entertaining. Because the DNA of this movie of like, a guy's trying his best, but it's actually acting like an emotional monster, but mm-hmm. it's low-key, and it's just trying to figure it out and stumbling through stuff. And stuff happens, but not too much. Like, maybe he takes a couple quaaludes, uh, makes a couple phone calls, <laughs> as you do in apparently the late 70s, early 80s. It just is everything that we watch now. Yeah. But with more, like, I gave you pink-eyed dude jokes. Like, everything that Judd Apatow does, like, all the shows you were mentioning, um, that is the DNA of comedy now. And so to watch the movie that started it actually felt a little... Yeah. Predictable. And, and I think that, you know, the the Judd Apatow tree, like there's the branch where it's like, we're going to take a very high concept idea or traditional idea, whether it's the end of the world or the night before Christmas or whatever it is, and or a midnight run style buddy movie and just apply that improvisatory stone sensibility yeah. to it. We'll and then Judd to, Apatow himself. We'll do it to Ghostbusters. Yeah, exactly. But whereas Judd Apatow is making more sort of introspective He's, um, he's trying to do late period Woody Allen, but he's still really only good at early period Woody Allen. Interesting. I that, think. That's quite a, that's a very succinct. That's a take. So yeah, that's where I'm at with Fleabag. It's just a kind of, I think everybody has their thing. You know, some people don't like physical comedy. Some people don't like um, profane comedy. Some people don't like, like Westerns. Some people don't <laughs> like Westerns and some people don't like made being made to feel wildly uncomfortable which is where your beanbag plan comes in yes which is just like everybody sit <laughs> forget all the mishigas you know <laughs> listen to you listen to half of you um but what? i'm i'm excited to keep watching fleabag and maybe like once i uh do i will do a podcast about it but let's talk about you should <laughs> i think that would be great I, I, let's transition to to easy because i think there's a there's a a, a good connection there which is for a long time 
we have definitely talked about how the the the, 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 the bottomless pockets of these streaming services seem could potentially be a boon for indie filmmakers who basically can't get money to yes. make movies anymore or, or to, to fund them to the degree that they would want to. And certainly, we just mentioned Woody Allen. He has an Amazon series coming in a month. Um, Joe Swanberg is an incredibly talented, incredibly prolific filmmaker. Mm-hmm. He's younger than us. He's made like 20 movies. Um, and he just he basically just bangs it's, them out. Has appeared in tons of like-minded movies or and, co- his peers' colleagues' movies. And has started directing for TV as well. He directed Looking. He directed On Love. I think, did he do a new girl? He very well could have because he he and jake johnson jake johnson is his muse yeah basically um and jake johnson appears in this series we're going to talk about so it seemed like a perfect marriage that netflix was basically like hey you're doing this anyway here's a bunch of money sure make a series it's just out of curiosity do you think they were like here's a bunch of money or do you think they were like here's a consistent distribution platform for your work and we won't tell you what to do creatively yeah i'm sure that they came to an agreement but he met with them and you know right but we're not talking like marco polo money or or no, or bloodline the, money. The get down. Well, no one like it, tonight's presidential <laughs> debate. No one will be talking bloodline money. Like, yeah, the United States government <laughs> can't afford that. Um, but so it seemed, you know. So basically, he made an anthology series, eight part series called Easy. It debuted on Friday, and it's very much in keeping with his work. It's about um, you know youngish to to a slightly olderish professional people in Chicago coming together and falling apart over issues of, of sex and money and, you know, and work. Mm-hmm. And it's a very nice setup in that it's, you know, the episodes are standalone, but characters, a minor character in one will appear in a larger role in yeah. another one. And I've watched, I watched two of them, mm-hmm. which is not representative of the show, but... Especially with an anthology series. Right, because, yeah. where some are going to clearly stand up above others. And the cast he got together for it is really great. Um but my feeling watching those first two was a little underwhelmed, which I think is kind of an unfair reaction. I think it is probably built into it. But it really felt like like what I was saying about Albert Brooks movies. I'm like, well, I've he's got some interesting people. He's put them together. And maybe some stuff will happen. But maybe it won't. Right. And that's the risk you run with that kind of um, filmmaking in general. But it felt maybe because it was a TV show and he could just chase the moments and had enough space to do it that it felt a little flat to me, whereas his movies that I really loved, like like Drinking Buddies or Happy Christmas, those were the best moments that he was chasing. Those had a framework. Those were like, it's yes. the Drinking Buddies was about whether or not you're ever going to clean your life up and get on with it or yeah. whether you're going to keep chasing, like whether you're comfortable, whether you're going to stay in your comfort zone forever. Yeah. And Happy Christmas is about the same thing. a family disintegrating over a holiday period, which is something well, I think... A brother and sister. Yeah, but... What I think gets me about this is I'm totally in touch with, like, the shit that's happening. Like, I got it. Like, I, I know. Yeah. You know, this is sort of what I'm talking about. Like, I don't necessarily... I still like some escapism in my entertainment. Yeah, I mean, and I do like to be transported sometimes. And being transported to two years ago or one year in the future in a, you know, urban Mayu, like, that I'm very familiar yeah. with, with people that I'm very familiar with, with problems I'm very familiar with... I sometimes just don't need any more shows that do that. And I really do like Swanberg movies. Don't get me wrong. And I especially like it when he applies his aesthetic to other genres like horror. Like, I love it. And, you know, he's in Your Next, and I fucking love it when he's in that. Um, but it's just it's just like a weird thing where it's like, I think I'm good. It's, you know, the, the, the thing that makes his his 
project, and it's basically one project that he's been doing for his professional career, the thing that makes it really interesting is that he is devoted to filming everything and then seeing when magic happens. And when you when that does happen, like in his last movie, Digging for Fire, and I think I've talked about this with other people. We talked about it. I think I talked about it in an interview maybe with when I when Jake Johnson was on. But like, there's, there's a moment in that movie when Brie Larson... Ha, ha, there's a scene between Brie Larson and Jake Johnson that eventually, I don't even think there are words in it, but it's just one of the more astonishing emotional conversations, mm-hmm. that in quotes, that I saw on any screen that year. It's just tremendous. And that happened. I mean, they, he finds the movie. It was mostly improvised. Yeah. The feeling I got from these first two episodes of Easy where he had an idea and he chased it and he found a couple things. Elizabeth Reeser is really good in the first episode. Kiersey Clemens is really good in the second episode. But like the takeaway from the second episode, which is uh, this young woman who's really willing to change herself completely and try to be vegan for a, a woman that she's met at a club and is kind of maybe in love with, but then she doesn't have to change. She can just be herself. Yeah. We didn't go very far. Right. You know what I mean? We had a lot of good intentions right. at the starting line, but we, the finish line wasn't that far away. So sometimes what happens is you'll hear about a show that's going to come on and you'll be like, that's a pretty high concept. I don't know how you're going to make more than five episodes about it. You mean like Designated Survivor? Or like The Good Place. Right. But... Sometimes when you hear something about easy and you're like, well, I guess you could make a hundred of those, but yeah. let me know the five good ones or like, yeah. you know what I, it's like there, I almost wish there was more high concept applied to easy that, that, that it did have, because when I think about the sitcoms or like the romantic 30 minute comedies that I like, I don't even know what to call these things anymore. I think about how happy endings or how I met your mother. Yeah. And there's a little bit of like, I like the screws to be tightened a little bit. I like jokes that, need they have like a long set setup and payoff yeah. i like romantic plots that like actually have momentum and tension um so it's it's interesting to watch like yet another one of these like i, I felt like a couple of them have left me feeling a little bit flat but I, i'm interested to see if like there are other because like, because it's an anthology there might be other stuff in but there but that's the thing but we're bumping up again on this idea that we cannot com- we can't really compare these things one to one to one anymore and even though they're being delivered to us in the same bite-sized bits you know, and um, average, I think marketed as like young people are in love, you know, like. But but to, to but to transition to the good place. So when I so the, the good place is on NBC. It was created by Michael Schur, who created Parks and Recreation. Yeah, it was on The Office for many years. And I talked to him on the podcast in like December, January, and he was and I asked him why he was doing this show for NBC um, when he probably could have made a show anywhere. And you know, he really really believes in he, I mean you can tell from watching the show and from anything he's done that he's kind of a, an optimist and yeah. utopian about a lot of things despite the world <laughs> constantly uh, proving him wrong um, that he believes in the big tent like he wanted the biggest possible audience the mm-hmm. biggest possible sandbox to play in and he has once again made I think made an incredibly compelling argument for what networks could and yes. should do yeah um, this is it's striking to say that this, it, it, a lot of thought went into it and a lot of care and shaping on how to do yeah, this Yeah, you can show. tell that there is, you know, you can tell that Mike probably really likes things like Game of Thrones. Because or of the just like of the, levels of th- depth of thinking about the rules and geography of the world well, that the show takes well, place in. Remember, he says, and he means this very genuinely, and he can explain it very cogently, the biggest influence on Parks and Recreation was The Wire. Yeah. Um, and I think the shows actually complement each other really well. But... In this, like clearly, you know, Game of Thrones lost. He wanted to play in that in that world, but so this is a show about the afterlife, and it's essentially about the universe. It's about can people be good, and what it even means to be good. Um, and Kristen Bell, Ted Danson, 
What's wonderful about it is that, you know, you see Kristen Bell, Ted Danson, creator of Parks and Rec, back on NBC Thursday nights. I'm like, okay, well, we're just going back there. We are going to service people with what they want. It's and not where it feels like. It's not, right. Yeah. In the same way that CBS or ABC, like, they have comedy brands and they, they pitch yeah. to those brands. This is not that. This is a heavily serialized show. Um, you can't. I saw him tweet the other night when right before the third because they yeah. put two up on last Monday after the Voice and the ratings and were then, great and then ran the third one on Thursday and the ratings were good also which and, was pretty surprising. but he had tweeted there's the third episode is on Thursday I strongly recommend you watch yeah. the first two as if like you're going to need these to understand and, where we're going and it's a smart bet basically on where TV is now because people are kind of used to that I mean I I. I I'm still can't get over the fact that when, you know, high schoolers told me they discovered friends on Netflix, they were like, yeah, we watched all 208 episodes in order. Yeah. We binged it. I'm like, you didn't have to. There really wasn't that much continuity, you know? Um, But but, how would you keep up with like the monkey? And then it's like. Great (laughs) point. Is Tom Selleck back? (laughs) But that, but this show is built for how we watch TV now. And so far, I mean, I just think it's wonderful. I think it's. Much like Parks and Rec, it is aggressively wonderful. It's also, you get Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. They're pretty watchable. Here's the thing about Ted Danson. Probably, I mean, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to make a blanket statement. I was going to say the best leading man or comic leading man on TV. His performance in Damages disagrees with you, but yes. <laughs> Comedic leading man performance, yeah. but also his performance in Fargo. No, he's incredible in Damages. Is, he's just like a... He's an incredible actor. Yeah. And he's an incredible TV star. And I think 20 years ago, that was an insult. Now it's an enormous compliment. Yeah, he's What just, a run for him. It, he's never not worked. Damages, Fargo. CSI. CSI, this. Uh, bored to death. Yeah. He, by all accounts, he just really loves to work and do different things. And he's just having a great time on this. In the same way that, um, like on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, when they got Andre Brower, like they just pitched to him. Like they know how yeah. to make him the funniest he can be on that show. Like these, every, the, the staff, writing staff of of good places mostly like parks and rec vets and alan yang who you know just won an emmy for master of none yeah. wrote the second episode they know they know how to handle like prime talent like ted danson and he's great and the supporting cast of people i've never seen before the guy who plays chidi is terrific um i'm i'm really impressed with the show yeah i just i i just i think that what a lot of people saw that he was coming back to nbc on thursday night the assumption was that, that it would be pleasant like it would be fun but he doesn't want to just be pleasant and fun and I was thinking about why I don't watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine with any regularity. It's not because it's not good every time I watch it. It's just because it's good every time I watch it. Yeah. Whereas this show is making an argument that a comedy, a traditional comedy, not like some sort of post-comedy drama that's a half hour long, can still be relevant in our TV conversation. Um, we should talk about the two picks that we have that are kind of ones that we didn't both watch. The wild but, cards. Yeah, wild cards. So we've got we've gone through Easy, we've gone through Transparent, we've gone through Fleabag and Good Place. Yeah. Those are all eminently worth checking out. Yeah. Uh, I am a big fan of The Ranch. I don't want to, we don't have to get like too into it. You outed yourself with this. No, I'm not even like. Can I just say one thing? Yeah. As a, for someone who does not have a title at theringer.com, I was really impressed with this week. Oh, thanks. It was a whole week devoted to the sort of TV that. that Airing in plain sight. Yeah. So shows that we just don't normally talk about with the same intensity with which we talk about, say, a night of. Right. Because one of the things about. Being a TV critic, which I, I once was, it was that... According you know, to that guy in the, the restaurant, you still are. I want to apologize to that guy <laughs> right now for, for... I feel like they're coming for me. Was that we all kind of were having the same... Conver- we're having a conversation about the same shows. Yeah. Certain things that move the needle. It's but deeper guys, or wider. And so we go very deep into Night of Conspiracy Theories or Game of Thrones 
paternity theories or whatever Well, completely is. ignoring things that are very popular yeah. and lasting. Like, yeah. there was a great piece on Conan O'Brien. There's a Juliet wrote about Suits, a show I will never watch until I get to host the after show, <laughs> and then I really won't watch it. Um, but you wrote about The Ranch. Yeah, so The Ranch is a show that reunites Danny Masterson and Ashton Kutcher. Finally! Probably Finally. need to flip those guys, right? Yeah. And Kutch is the... The draw, and it also uh, stars one of my favorite comedic actresses, yeah. Alicia Cuthbert. She's on that? Yeah. Oh, I'd watch it. That's yeah. all you had to say. And then co-stars Sam Elliott and Deborah Winger. Leash. Yeah. Alicia's back. Yeah, she is very funny. Did you say Sam Elliott and Deborah Winger? Yeah. So weird. Yeah. Sam Elliott and Deborah Winger are in a 20-episode season of a sitcom with profanity and diegetic music that's on Netflix. It's just like, this is 2016. Uh... There might be some jokes or some sensibilities in this that I can totally understand people not particularly liking. I don't agree with everything. Like, it's it's an interesting litmus test of what you kind of will and will not tolerate. Uh, it positions itself very much as a, like, red state comedy. Yeah. But I would not call it necessarily a conservative comedy. I think right. it's set on a ranch in Colorado. They're going through a really tough economic time. Ashton Kutcher has come back from a failed athletic career to kind of live it up as a hometown hero. Yeah. But he like comes back and his family is kind of under dire straits and he has to he also is falling in love with his high school girlfriend. So it's a pretty good is, is, setup. Is that leash? Yeah. It's a pretty good setup for like your your normal sitcom. And there's a lot of really cool formal invention. There they like a lot of the, it's it's shot on a soundstage, but some of the sets will be like outdoors, hmm. quote unquote. Um, scenes will like kind of run a l- much longer than they do in uh, in a traditional sitcom, and they are much more willing to play with dramatic moments uh, than usually you'll you'll find. But because it comes from people who have written for Two and a Half Men, who have starred in three hundred episodes of sitcoms, it's just like really professional. Like those guys really land planes, I, and I, I it, it's like because. You can watch them in 10 episode bricks. So the first one is already out. And then the second half of this first season is coming in October. And then they're going to do another season next year, same way, where they put up 10 episodes, Mm -hmm. three, four months off, 10 episodes. It kind of replaces the 24 lost Breaking Bad style. Like, I have to know what happens next binge watch and replaces it with... I just kind of want to keep hanging out here. But isn't that, like, that replaces a type of show that I don't know if we ever landed on a name for it, but, you know, people would ask me at Grandland, like, do you watch The League? And I would mm-hmm. say, yes, but... On planes. But for myself. Yeah. Like, like, I would come home from a bar or whatever back when I would go to a bar yeah. and watch three episodes of this The League. This is the private relationship that we have in television. Yeah. It's like you watch Bourdain. Like, I will watch, on a Sunday, if I'm hungover, I will watch Bourdain for six hours. That's a great hangover move, by yeah. the way. I fully co-signed. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. You, you're mentioning that. Um, I, I checked. I checked out Speechless, which is a comedy on ABC. It has a sterling like behind the scenes, like the, the people who made it. Um, Scott Silvery like worked on Friends. He created uh, was it Getting On? Getting What was the uh, Go On? The Matthew Perry. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Jake Kasdan, Melvin Marr, who helped shepherd um, Fresh Off the Boat, like. Professional people made this yeah, show. Yeah, same thing, yeah. And it's admirable. Like, this is the thing. It's in a weird... Making a sitcom in 2016 on a network is a very weird thing. So the quote-unquote hook is that it's, it is the disability sitcom. Because Mini Driver, who, by the way, whichever executive made the decision to let her have her accent, her real English accent, is the winner here. Yeah. Because 
she's finally like free to be a perfectly good and funny like actor whereas yeah. like when she's on about a boy being american like it's just people some people are constrained by doing accents sure she's terrific on the show she's a lot of fun she's the sort of hard-charging mother of three um her oldest is in a wheelchair he's unable to speak he has a like a stephen hawking sight board that he that he you know he can put words up on his screen the young performer who plays that character who I should have looked up his name before he did the podcast is terrific. John Ross Bowie plays her husband, is a good comedic actor. It it hits all the buttons. The thing is, with a traditional sitcom, though, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your premise, really. It doesn't matter um, what you're trying to be, how you're teaching us lessons, how you're making us see members of the community that we hadn't maybe looked at before. Those are all noble things that get you greenlit and get you on the air. But a sitcom like this, it just lives or dies on the chemistry of the cast and whether you want to hang out with them, yeah. whether they become your family. And the manic nature of these family sitcoms, how much they have to prove in their premise pilots. Yeah. By the way, family sitcoms didn't used to have premise pilots. You know what the pilot of Family Ties was? There's a fucking family. No, I think like in Modern Family, they like adopt a baby and kind of are still acting like it's a documentary. Remember, like it's like yes. th- there's like 17 things happening in that show. And that's a perfect pilot, too. That pulled it off. But like... All the shows we grew up with, which, you know, maybe the jokes are better or, the sh- you know, they're single camera instead of multi-camera. Uh, Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, starring the goddess Judith Light. Um, <laughs> family Ties, like whether, you know, Family Ties was better than those, but we watched all those shows. It didn't matter, the setup. It was just a family. And then the writing and the yeah. acting made yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and then the people on the shows would either be stars or they wouldn't. And so like it Cedric would be Kirk Yar- Cameron and Michael J. Fox, or it would be... And, and Cedric Yarborough, who's from Reno 911, yeah. plays the yeah, guy yeah. who basically becomes the kid's voice in the premise pilot. He's great. He's having a great time on the show. So Is it's, premise pilot actually like a technical term? Yeah, a premise pilot. There are pilots that begin like in media res, where it's like we're joining the world. And gotcha. Pre- and a premise pilot is a pilot where it's just like, here's... So th- here's how... Um, John Bull became a jury consultant. Yeah. Like, but I didn't watch that show. Cause, right. But basically, most pilots these days are very like if, it, if it's a premise pilot for House, it's like, how did House become addicted to painkillers or whatever? Or it's like first day on the job. Or yeah, like, right. Uh, it, it's a big... You don't know me, but my name is Gregory House. Yeah. And so in, in this one, it's basically proving the case for its existence and explaining to you how these characters got into this predicament while introdu- introducing us to the characters. That sounds fun. It's really hard. And to do it in 21 minutes yeah. and make it through all the round of notes, it's a miracle anything gets made. But that was my feeling of watching Speechless. It, it was exhausting because it was trying so hard. And then maybe in five or 10 episodes, we'll check back into it. But because it was made in the meat grinder of the network process, it might not get to those episodes. Right. Whereas um, these other other shows we've been talking about, which obviously have different goals. But maybe the, the best comparison is The Ranch because... They just knew what they wanted to do. Yeah. Also, I think that they came to Netflix and probably were like, this is this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And they were like, great. Right. Whereas let spe- us know when you want to stop. Whereas Speechless, they were what, what attracted ABC to it was the writers, the producers involved. And I'll say that word again, the premise. They yeah. were like, we would be interested in, in expanding. You know, ABC rightfully prides itself on having a very diverse slate of family comedies. Yeah. And, and having comedy with a disabled family member. Like, that's not something that many shows have done. So they were interested in that. It did. It wasn't like Greenlight Mini Driver Project. Sure. But by the way, more people around this town should say that. <laughs> Even if they're just sitting at, at a like a intersection. I, absolutely. That's yeah. how I'm going to order a coffee from now on. Um, I'm okay. Say, I'd like a large mini driver project. So should we tip what we're going to be talking about on Thursday? So if any of this stuff is on, people can kind of start to watch watch it for what we're going to talk about. What we're going to try. I haven't done it yet, but I promise you that I'm going to check out Gamora. I'm gonna. You're really not gonna enjoy. This. I'm gonna strap on my 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 mining helmet and go into the <laughs> dark dark corridors 
of the Italian Mafia. <laughs> yep. Um, you're so excited for me to watch this. <laughs> uh, what else do we want to check in with? Queen Sugar? Yeah, we should check out Queen Sugar. People are talking about that. Uh, I haven't seen that yet either. Uh, and we could preview. Uh, Luke Cage is coming Friday. That's right. But we, we, I don't know if we're going to be able to see that. As is uh, Westworld. It's coming over the weekend, so we could sort of talk a little bit about that. Going oh, into we'll it. preview Westworld, yeah, because I've I've seen Westworld. Yeah, but we could talk it. a little bit about Gamora, Queen Sugar. Uh, we could check in on Halt if you want to. Love Halt and Catch. And we'll talk a little bit about Lana. The state of drama. All right, talk to you then, man. Great job, Redsky. Right,